Hello and welcome to the Travels with Jim Hamill podcast. We are up to episode nine in our Ireland series, and today we're going to talk about Irish independence. And it's actually cool that I get to talk about it when I do, this being the year 2022, because this is the centennial of Irish independence. It actually happened in 1922, so we're at 100 years. That will be pretty cool for the group this year since they always have stuff about Irish independence up, and especially in Dublin. You can actually go on tours related to the uh, Irish independence events and stuff like that. But there should be even more stuff this year, so that will be kind of cool. What I want to do here is talk about it so that you have sort of a background. So when you hear about things related to Irish independence, you'll kind of know what they're talking about and be able to fit it into sort of a, a background. I'm not trying to tell you everything there is to know about it here, but to give you some kind of basis of knowledge so that you can understand things that you're looking at, things that you're hearing, stuff like that, because you will see things related to it and hear about it when you're there, no doubt. The basics are simply this, and if you haven't listened already to my English in Ireland podcast, you might want to because we touch on this in that, but the basics are that there was a failed revolt in 1916 during World War I that was initially crushed by the British, but because of the heavy-handed nature in which they handled it and some other things, it sort of caused a more popular uprising against the British, which then led to a treaty in 1921 between the British and the Irish that granted them status as a free state, and that came into effect in 1922. So that's the basics, and, and that's the time frame that we're talking about. But how did this happen? As you may have heard, if you listen to the English in Irish podcast, this was yet another of a series of revolts of the Irish against the British. It had been going on all the time. Why did this revolt, and in fact this failed revolt, why did it lead then to independence from what at that point is the most powerful country in the world. Well, it's sort of interesting, and to get into it, we need to go back to, you know, say 20, 30 years before this, and remember what we're talking about at the time, which is something called home rule. In the late 1800s, there was an Irish party called the IPP, Irish Parliamentary Party, and they were pretty much a single-issue party, which is that they wanted some degree of independence for Ireland. And then the degree they wanted was referred to as home rule, which is that they would still be part of the United Kingdom in some fashion, but they would have their own parliament, essentially, and get to govern themselves. And the way they sort of got this on the agenda, even though they were a small party, was by making themselves the tiebreaker. When the votes were close between the liberals or the conservatives, they would align themselves invariably with the liberals. And then that would be enough to push the liberals over the edge and give them enough members of parliament to be the majority. But there was a price to that. They had to be bought. The price was always support for home rule. And this went on through the 1880s, 90s, and early 1900s. And there had actually been a series of votes on home rule through that time. Uh, initially, they were unsuccessful. In fact, I think the first one brought down the Gladstone government entirely. 
Then there were other ones after that were unsuccessful. There was one that actually got through the House of Commons, but the Lords vetoed it. And in those days, the Lords were a sort of co-equal branch of the legislature in the United Kingdom. It's interesting to note that the Ireland question is one of the things that got the Lords demoted, as it were, via legislation that then changed their power to veto legislation to simply allow them to delay legislation. And, and that happened in the early 1900s. And so on we go upwards to about 1914. And at that point, home rule is on the agenda again. But this time it passes. This time it goes through the House of Commons. The House of Lords is powerless to stop it. And so now it is in fact the law. So everything's great, right? Well, it would be, but for something called World War I, which also started in 1914. And at that point, home rule was suspended. And in a sort of fit of patriotic fervor, everybody pretty much just agreed to suspend it. It wasn't a controversial move. Even the IPP, the Irish Parliamentary Party, agreed to this. So they put this on the back burner for World War I. Now, keep in mind at the time, everybody thought World War I was going to be a short exercise, that they would be home by Christmas. And so nobody really realized what they were getting into when they agreed to postpone home rule. But they did agree to postpone it. And then what happens, as we all know, is that World War I drags on. It ends up dragging on for four years, and during that time, there was a certain degree of impatience about it. I should back up here and mention a couple things. One is that there was not unanimity within Ireland as to home rule being the answer. You had many people who thought home rule was the answer, but you also had people that wanted to go all the way and make Ireland a republic totally separate from the United Kingdom. That was a much smaller group, though. But, of course, you also had people on the other side of the coin that wanted to remain within the United Kingdom, and those were mostly concentrated in Ulster, which is Northern Ireland today. So it wasn't just this sort of situation where everybody wanted home rule. And during the course of World War I, a lot of these attitudes hardened, frankly, on both sides. One of the interesting things is that Ireland essentially gets armed on, on both sides. The, the people in the north, in Ulster, who wanted to stay in the United Kingdom really were the first ones to start adding arms to the equation and all this marching that went on. But they did. And then people in the south sort of followed suit and did that. And so during World War I, you have these armed groups on both sides in Ireland going around. So the whole thing is a tinderbox to start with. And then the group that wants sort of full-on Irish independence and wants to be a republic, they start becoming more assertive. And they're the ones that lead to what's called the Easter Rising, which was the 1916 revolt that was supposed to be this popular uprising against British rule. Now, everything about the 1916 revolt seems to doom it to failure. The first thing is they, they didn't have the numbers to begin with. The second thing is that it was dependent on them getting a shipment of arms from Germany, and that shipment was intercepted by the British and sent to the bottom of the ocean, so they didn't have the arms they thought they were going to have. And then, to make matters worse, 
there was a lot of confusion as to whether or not this revolt was actually going to take place. Once the arms shipment was captured by the British, it was called off by one part of the group. But then another part of the group wanted to go forward. And so they did. So they go forward. They didn't have the numbers to begin with. They don't have the arms. Now there's confusion. And then their strategy was pretty much just to take over these government buildings, presumably thinking that there would be more of a popular uprising at that point, which never materialized. So all you have is this group that takes over mostly buildings in Dublin, centered on something called the GPO, which is the General Post Office. And you'll still see this today. It was it was then and it is now perhaps the most impressive building on O'Connell Street in central Dublin. And they occupied it and that was sort of the base of this revolt. It lasts about a week before the British uh, crush it. That might have been the end of it, but for the British, which had, you know, they had a remarkable ability to overplay their hand and really be overbearing in their response to things. And that's what they did here. The first thing they did was execute the leaders. And that might not sound odd to you, but it was to the Irish. These are people that surrendered in war to the other side. And in war, when you surrender to the other side, you're taken to a prisoner of war camp and, and released at the end of the conflict, and that's the way it goes. But to the British, these were traitors, and so they were executed. And not just executed, but sort of they strung it out over days. Then it just became an irritant to the Irish. Another thing is that after the revolt, certain stories came to light whereby people that were very innocent, in fact, one guy that was doing nothing but helping people, was captured by the British and tortured and then executed. And, and there were a few stories like that. And all of this irritated the Irish, something more than irritated, uh, exacerbated the situation and created a lot of popular sentiment against the British. So that's where we're headed. And then something else happens, which you have to keep in mind now, we're talking about the time period of 1916 to 1918, which is the second half of World War I. And at this point, the Germans have knocked the Russians out of the war. So all the Germans have is the Western Front and the Americans hadn't arrived yet. So this is something of an existential threat to Britain. And at this point, they're running out of people. There is no conscription in Ireland up to this point, but now they decide as unpopular as they know it's going to be that they need to add conscription and start adding more Irish to the lines. Now, as you might imagine, this is remarkably unpopular in Ireland, and this leads to even more anti-English sentiment, and that leads to something else, which is an election. Basically, at this time, just to set the table for you, as I mentioned, the main Irish party was called IPP, and that was the group that wanted home rule. And up to this point, they had been the dominant political force within Ireland. There was another smaller party called Sinn Féin, S-I-N-N-F-E-I-N. -N -E they wanted full-on independence. They wanted to be a republic. Now, because of the things that we're talking about here, because of this changing sentiment brought on by the revolt and the English response to it and also to this conscription thing, the tables turn, essentially. And there's an election in 1918. And let me look at these numbers here. The results were that 
Sinn Féin went from a small, almost obscure party to having 91% of the vote. They took over 71 or 73 seats and the IPP went down to six. So basically Sinn Féin goes from a small, obscure group to the dominant political force in Ireland and they want full-on independence. They want a republic. So they set up something called a DAIL, D-A-I-L, which is the Irish legislature. And they say, we're not sending our guys to Westminster to be part of the British Parliament. We are independent in the spirit of this 1916 revolt. And we want to set up our own legislature and be our own country. And so now here we go. And we start getting into this pitch battle between the Irish and the British. Only it wasn't a pitched battle, and neither side wanted a pitched battle. The British, you have to remember, this is part of the British Isles. This is part of the United Kingdom. This is not some other country. This is not even some far-flung colony where they can just send in the army. They have to treat this as a, as a police matter, and so that's what they do. And they simply bolster the existing police forces uh, within Ireland. And Ireland didn't want it treated as a war either because they couldn't win that. I mean, if they tried to do a pitched battle against the British army, they'd just been crushed within minutes. So neither side wanted a full war. And so it gets sort of fought in a peculiar way. The Irish do two things. One is they essentially decide to ignore all British institutions. They set up their own courts and they start operating those instead of the British courts. They set up their own system of taxation and they start doing that instead of, you know, paying taxes to the crown. And they set up these alternative institutions in every way that you can think of in order to sort of push the British stuff to the side. And in the West and some of these more obscure areas, they're successful and they're able to do that because the British power wasn't as pronounced there, which you might imagine in, in these more remote places. The other thing they do is they start attacking the police officers. Again, this is more successful in the more remote areas, but they're, they're killing police officers by the hundreds. I think I saw at one point they had either killed or they had destroyed the offices for 400 police stations throughout Ireland. So there was a lot of this going on at the time, but that's how they chose to operate it. Anyway, the British are not just going to tolerate this, right? So they start bolstering their police forces. So how do they do that? What they did was they sent over, and they had a great name for it, they called these guys temporary constables. And they sent over 7,000 of these guys. And these were predominantly World War I vets. And they were going to give them black uniforms and and they gave them black shirts to wear over there but they didn't have enough pants for them and so these guys being world war one vets all had their khakis so they told them just to wear their khaki pants with these black shirts and then they became known in ireland and to history as the black and tans and these guys were sent to bolster the police force but it sounds like they were just this drunken, reckless group of guys that went around doing various acts of reprisals and savagery against the Irish. Uh, and, and there was a lot of it. And so each side gave as good as it got. 
And that's kind of how it went down. You had the the Irish fighting with their guerrillas, and, and that was largely headed by a guy named Michael Collins you've probably heard of. He was this really dynamic, charismatic guy that was actually the minister of finance, but also had something called a squad where they would go and attack these uh, police officers. And then the, the British would uh, uh, retaliate in various ways via the black and tans, and, and it was very bloody and very savage. It sort of reaches a peak in 1920 and 21, and there's a big event they call Bloody Sunday. And it starts with Michael Collins' squad attacking a bunch of uh, British officers and agents and basically killing them in their sleep. 14 of them in one night in their sleep by going to their houses and killing them. The British retaliate the very next day. A group of soldiers goes to a, a soccer game and basically it sounds like they just shot into the crowd and killed like 12 people. And another thing that happens, and this is very famous, is that the Black and Tans essentially burned down Central Cork. What they did was they set fire to it and then shot anybody that showed up to try to put it out. So that was a particularly famous aspect to this war. And that's what you get when you're at peak violence for this, this whole thing. Anyway, this goes on for a while and eventually both sides are uh, pretty much worn out. It's basically a stalemate where neither side can really get a leg up on the other. The Irish at this point really can't go on. The British policy had failed and they're both looking for ways out. I should mention that the British attempted to legislate their way out and this will have important consequences because what they do is they say, we're going to give you home rule but we're gonna give home rule in two parts. They're gonna create a legislature for the North or Ulster, and we're gonna do a separate one for the South. And this is the first time that there's this partition that we still see today uh, in Northern Ireland, but this is where it comes from, is this British legislation of 1920. In the North, they accepted it, and frankly, that was their parliament until 1972. And we'll talk more about how that came to an end later. But that was more or less accepted. It was the basis of their government for many years. The South immediately rejects it and carries on. But like I said, at this point, both sides are exhausted. And Ireland sends over a group of guys, including Michael Collins, to negotiate with the British. They do and come home with a treaty that basically nobody loves. What they wanted when they went was this sort of external association with the British, that they wanted to have some sort of relationship with the United Kingdom, but they didn't want to be in it. What they ended up with is what was called a self-governing dominion, which is basically like Canada or Australia or countries like that, where you're still in the Commonwealth of the United Kingdom, but you get to govern themselves. Now, if this had been 20 years prior, that would have been a grand slam for the Irish. But attitudes had hardened, and by this point, most of them wanted full-on Republican government. What they got was something called the Free State. In other words, they got, they got their parliament, they got to tax themselves, they got to run their affairs, they got all that. But there were some trappings to it that they didn't like. The main one was that they were going to have to swear an oath of allegiance to the king. I think this was just the members of parliament prior to taking their offices would have to swear this 
oath of allegiance to the king. And this was beyond distasteful to many of them. And this is an era when oaths were taken much more seriously maybe than they are now. But this did not sit well, but it was something the Irish were, were forced to agree to in order to get this treaty. It was approved by the Irish. Remember, they have the Irish Dale, and it's put to a vote there, and it passes by a count of 64 to 57. But as you can see, that's very close, and a number of people were, were against this. They were not just against it a little, they were against it a lot. They basically had viewed it as, look, we have fought for this republic, and now you're betraying it by making us still be a part of the United Kingdom. So we can already see this is going to lead to a problem and this plants the seeds for the Irish Civil War, which everybody can see is coming at this point. But before we talk about that, let's wrap up the independence thing because they do, like I said, agree to this treaty in 1921. There was a one-year implementation period. And so that's how come, even though the treaty was in 1921, the actual date of Irish independence is in 1922 which makes it the centennial this year. So that's how it happens. And then we have this free state that carries on for quite some time. Uh, and I Ireland, which as you know, is now a republic. It actually made that change not until 1949 though. So it was this free state from 1922 all the way till after World War II. Anyway, now let's go back and talk about this fight they're having over whether or not they should accept the treaty or not accept the treaty. Obviously, they voted to accept it, but there were many, and many of them prominent, people that just wanted nothing to do with this treaty, and the fighting starts right away. And this was serious fighting, probably as vicious as anything in the fight with the British. And in fact, this is where Michael Collins is killed. This fighting goes on about two years, and then at that point, the treaty forces have pretty well mopped it up, although basically the anti-treaty people don't come to Parliament for a few years after that. Anyway, that was an unfortunate sort of after effect of the whole independence process, but in any event, we're through now. 1922 and how Ireland became independent. And that leads to the sort of question we posed at the outset of this, which is why then? Why does this failed revolt after what seems like an endless series of failed revolts throughout Irish history turn into independence for Ireland? And there's a few interesting aspects to this, some of which we've talked about, but some of which we haven't. Keep in mind how the British are looking at this as they go into this whole affair in the teens and 20s. They're already resigned to home rule. They had agreed to that. It had been voted on several times and was actually approved in 1914. So by the time we're talking 1916, 1921, 1922, they'd already had years in which they knew Ireland was going to be ruling itself in some form or fashion. So they kind of had their expectations set where they needed to be in order to accept something like this going in. Also, an important thing we haven't talked about, I guess we kind of have alluded to it in different podcasts, but I want to go back to the population trends in Ireland and how this impacted things. Remember that Ireland had this declining population, which started in the time of the famine in the late 1840s. When you go back and look at the numbers, and I have them here, 1841, which was the first census, and it was done 
a few years before the famine started. This is basically the high water mark for Ireland in terms of population numbers, and they're at a little over 8 million people. At this time, all of Great Britain was 26 and a half million people. So at this point, Ireland is about 30% of the population of all of the United Kingdom. So that is a major important part of the United Kingdom that they are never going to let go. Now let's flash forward to 1911, which is the census before all this stuff starts. At this point, the population of Ireland has fallen to just over 4 million people. And that's pretty amazing. And we've talked about this before, though, how the population went down almost 50% in this period of about 60 years, largely through emigration. Well, during this time, the populations of England, Scotland, and Wales continued going up. So by this time, their population combined is 45 million people, and that's with Ireland in it as well. That's all the United Kingdom. So Ireland is now less than 10% of the total population of the United Kingdom at this point. And keep in mind, that includes Northern Ireland. And Northern Ireland, by this time, is the most industrialized part of Ireland. And that's going to stay under this agreement they make with the British. So no longer is Ireland this huge percentage of population that it once was, and the British get to keep what they likely viewed as the most important part of it. So this was something I think they were much more prepared to live with than they might have been otherwise. And in any event, keep in mind too, this is the era of World War I, and one of the sort of war aims of the Allies in World War I was national self-determination. And so British are having to live with their own mantra at this point. So that is sort of where the British were with all of this. And from the Irish perspective, I mean, substantively, they got what they wanted. In other words, they have their own parliament. They have their own taxation. They have their own country free from British impediment in almost every way, except for small details like this oath that we talked about. And it's interesting because... I saw uh, on YouTube, there's a speech given by Michael Collins, and it's done during the uh, time after the treaty was signed, but before it was voted on, and he's out stumping for it. And he says something really interesting. He's talking about it, and, and, and he sees this civil war coming, and he's talking about how, you know, there's some amongst us who, you know, are against this and are going off, and, and we can see this civil war, and we can't have this, and... You know, there's still time to come back and we can all unite and go forward and all this sort of thing. And what he says about this, he says, no, you know, this treaty isn't perfect. But what he says is, did you think that we were going to fight against the greatest empire the world has ever seen and not have to compromise? And I thought that was really interesting. That That's a very good point for the Irish to think they should get absolutely everything they wanted Seems, in hindsight, a little unrealistic, but that's what some wanted. But in any event, what that shows is how remarkable it was that they got what they got when you consider what they were up against. Anyway, I hope you have found all this useful and interesting, and I think that's everything you need to know about the Irish independence movement so that as you're there and you see stuff about independence in 1916 and 1922, you'll have a a clearer idea of what that's all about. I once again appreciate you listening to all my ramblings and I will talk to you later.